Hello, friends. It's Rachel, and welcome to another episode of the Daryl Johnson Podcast. In this Advent season, we wanted to share with you a special three-part Christmas series from Daryl on the Christmas story according to John chapter 1. The month of December can be a really busy time of year in our world, but it's during the Christmas season that the cultural spotlight shines on Jesus more than perhaps any other time of year. This Christmas season, Daryl invites us to soak in the opening verses of the Gospel of John, a passage that takes us into the very heart of the Advent Christmas season. Join Daryl as he takes us back before Bethlehem to the very beginning and celebrates how the one who has existed for all of eternity, the divine creator, has put on human flesh and has come into the world so that we too might live in sync with the one who gives us life. Many of you know how much I love this season of the year, the Advent Christmas season. Yes, it can be a bit stressful. And yes, there are those sad moments, like when we remember those who have gone on before us and we feel their absence, or like when we see or hear all the turmoil in the world around us, extreme weather, brutal wars, protests turning violent, tragedy after tragedy. Yet, I love this season of the year. Why? Because the spotlight shines on Jesus. To paraphrase missionary evangelist E. Stanley Jones, even as we shake our head in despair, saying, look what the world is coming to, we can say in delight, Look what has come to the world. And as the spotlight begins to shine more on Jesus, chances are that during the coming days and weeks, conversations could turn toward him. Chances are higher right now that someone might say to us, so do you have a moment? Can you tell me? Who is he, this Jesus, this child lying in the manger? Who is this before whom shepherds and wise men are compelled to kneel in adoration? Who is this one who, simply by showing up, awakens hope? So for me, there simply is no other time of the year like Advent Christmas. You can imagine, therefore, how glad I am to see and hear the word Advent written and spoken in all kinds of places in our culture right now. You can imagine how thrilled I was when I walked into the Starbucks across the street a few weeks ago and saw that the company had created and was selling an Advent calendar. Thank you, Lord, my spirit said. I go over to the place where it is displayed anxious to see how this coffee giant was going to help people enter into the season. The calendar is a magnetic chalkboard with 25 small reusable tins, one for each day of Advent, each containing a sweet treat. I just learned last week what many of you parents have known for a long time, and that is that toy makers are making Advent calendars. Playmobil, for instance. I remember fondly when our children were little, the joy of playing with these little Playmobil, Playmobil, 
Playmobil figures, these cute little animals and humans. Well, Playmobil has made an advent calendar called the Unicorn Fairyland Advent Calendar. It says on the box, features lots of woodland animals as well as a mystical unicorn. Then the other night, Sharon mentioned to me that Lego has come out with a number of advent calendars. I really like playing Lego with the grandchildren. And, and again, my spirit said, thank you, Lord. So I looked online. And I find a Lego Star Wars advent calendar. 270 pieces, it says on the box. Exclusive Darth Vader minifigure included. Hmm. I also find a Lego Friends Advent Calendar. Nice, I thought. And I wondered how they were going to make these miniature sheep and donkeys, shepherds and wise men, and a young mother and a child. No such friends in, in the calendar. And then I see this Lego City Advent Calendar. It says on the box, Make every day a festive building adventure as you count down to Christmas. Sounds like it has possibilities. There's a special something or someone for each day of Advent. Day one, a snowman with a broom. Day two, a boy with a sword. Day 11, a fireplace. Day 12, a sled. Day 23, a Christmas tree. Getting closer. Day 24, Santa Claus with a toy train engine. Okay. We can work with that. At least it's better than Darth Vader showing up Christmas Eve. And at least there's some connection to the season. St. Nicholas, in whose tradition Santa follows, did what he did. Gave gifts to the poor because he loved Jesus, who, according to Nicholas's greatest text in Scripture... Though he was rich, became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Advent. The word simply means arrival, with the nuance of waiting. Waiting for the arrival of. When we hear or see the word Advent, therefore, we are to ask, of what? The arrival of what? Of whom? The arrival of whom? This Advent Christmas season, I invite you to dwell in a text of Scripture which, unlike any other text I know, takes us into the very heart of the season. I invite you to soak all four Sundays of the season in the opening verses of the Gospel according to John. It is traditionally called the prologue, an appropriate title. Prologue. Pro, before, loge, word. Before the word. A word before the word. Before John tells us the story of Jesus, he tells us a word that will enable us to understand the story. A better title, a more descriptive title for what John writes in the opening verses of his gospel is Overture. A better way to call John 1, 1 to 18 is overture. Functioning like an overture to a musical or an overture to an opera. 
It's often simply a musical piece playing some part of each of the pieces to come. Doing more than simply setting the stage. It's actually drawing the audience into the major themes and movements of the opera or the musical. As Ellen did this morning in the prelude. She played on the organ parts of all that we are singing in this service of worship today. Thus, in John's overture, we are introduced to words phrases, ideas, and themes we will encounter as we read the rest of his work. Light, life, darkness, witness, world, believe into, born of God, become flesh, begotten, son, behold, glory, grace, truth, fullness, see God, bosom of the Father. So in John 1, 1 to 18... We have more than an introduction, more than a prologue. It is a verbal taste of what is to come. Even more, it is a visual and audio feast of what is to come. So that when we enter into the story John will tell, we will enter the story knowing who the story is about. As we listen to and watch Jesus speak and act, the overture will help us know who is speaking and acting. The major reason overture is a better term is because of the way John has crafted his work. It has the quality of a hymn. It is definitely a poem, but I think it's also a hymn. Telling us that we best hear it when it's read out loud, or better yet, when it is sung out loud. Andrea set the first two verses to music in the composition she just sang for us, which she is going to teach us in the next Sunday. So, would you please stand for the reading of a text that takes us into the very heart of the Advent Christmas season. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men and women. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it. The darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He, he was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. 
There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man and woman. He was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But to all who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of flesh, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God, born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is the one of whom I said, the one who comes after me has a higher rank than me because he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. For no one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Living God, we believe that you got a hold of John, the fisherman, and you enabled him to think these thoughts that have challenged the greatest minds throughout century, and you enabled him to write this beautiful overture. And I pray now in your mercy and grace that you would cause us to enter into it so that its music would sing in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let us simply start walking through the text. In the beginning, when Mark tells the story of Jesus, He begins on the banks of the Jordan River when Jesus steps into the water and is baptized by John the Baptist. Luke, the medical doctor, comes along and, as it were, says, the story begins earlier than that. In a village of Nazareth in Galilee, when an angel named Gabriel speaks to a young peasant woman, telling her that the impossible is going to happen, that she, a virgin, is going to conceive and give birth to a special child. Matthew, the former tax collector, comes along and he says, as it were, a story begins even earlier than that. 
And he refers to a promise made a thousand years before to David and another promise made 2,000 years before to Abraham. And then John, the former fisherman, comes along and as it were, he says, ah, the story began even before that in the beginning. Long before his baptism, long before his conception in the virgin's womb, long before David, long before Moses and the Exodus, long before Abraham, long before Noah, long before Adam and Eve, long before the mountains erupted in the sea, long before dinosaurs roamed the earth, long before any primordial ooze began to stir, long before any kind of big bang. In the beginning, says John, the Jesus story begins in the beginning. Indeed, before the beginning, in the beginning was, was. The tense of the Greek verb that John uses, the imperfect, refers to continuous action in the past. Continuous action in the past. That is, already was, or better yet, always was. In the beginning, he already was. He always already was. There was never a time when he was not. So in the overture, John repeats the witness of John the Baptist. He who comes after me has a rank higher than I, for he existed before me. John the Baptist was born before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But John came to realize that his cousin somehow existed before him, long before him, long before any prophet, long before the world came into being. When, therefore, we read the rest of the story, we are reading about someone who has been around a long, 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 long time. As God says of him in the text of the prophet Micah, we read as we led the, lit the first Advent candle, his goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. In the beginning was the word. The Greek word John uses here is the word logos, L-O-G-O-S. It comes into the English language in words like logic, logical, logistics. Implying that logic is that which squares with the logos. Implying that the logical thing to do in life is that which is in sync with the logos. Now, why does John begin with this term? Why begin the story of Jesus of Nazareth with the term logos? I mean, why not use a term like son? John will use son a lot in the telling of the Jesus story. It will be the major way of referring to Jesus. So why not use son in the overture? In the beginning was the son. And the son was with God. And the son was God. All things came into being by the son. And the son became flesh and dwelt among us. Why not say it that way? Or why not use one of the other titles that will be used of Jesus? Titles like Son of Man or Lord or Messiah. Or why not use the Great I Am? John's Gospel will come to its theological climax 
when at the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus refers to himself as the I am. John 8, 24, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. And then John, 50, John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. So why not work with that in the overture? Why not write it this way? In the beginning was the great I am. And the great I am was with God. And the great I am was God. All things came into being by the great I am. And the great I am became flesh and dwelt among us. Wow. Why not begin that way? Why begin with this word logos? Because John is first and foremost an evangelist. He's a brilliant theologian. He's a pastor. But first and foremost, he's an evangelist. He is a good newsizer. And so he begins the story of the good news for the world on a note that will hook into as wide a scope of humanity as possible. And the term logos is just that hook. It rings chords deep within every culture to which John speaks. Not that he affirms everything every culture affirms by the term logos. It's just that it gives him an entree into the minds and hearts of as full a scope of the people of his day. John will end up saying a whole lot more than anyone else believes about the Lagos, but he begins with this term because it puts him on common ground with everyone in his culture. What if the Spirit had chosen to compose this overture in our day, and what if he had chosen one of us to compose it? What term would we use to hook into as wide an audience as possible? What about good vibrations? Or good energy? I I hear people use that often, especially at the Y, where I run. I feel the good energy. In the beginning was the good energy. Yep, folks would say, yep. And the good energy was God. Well, okay. And the the good energy caused all things to come into being. Okay. And the good energy became flesh and dwelt among us. Whoa, dude. (laughs) Or what about higher power? In the beginning was the higher power. Like I'm with you, man. And the higher power was with God. God? Like, what does God have to do with anything? And the higher power was God. I thought we weren't supposed to name any of our higher powers. And the higher power became flesh and dwelt among us. A person? The higher power is a person? Or what about using the term love? In the beginning was the love. I think our contemporaries would say, I like that. I can go with that. And the love was with God. I suppose that makes sense, they'd say. And the love was God. Well, if there is a God, I like that. All things came into being by love, and love became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Tell me more. In the beginning was the word, the logos. Why is this word logos a hook? Well, when the Greeks in John's day heard this term logos, many of the people in John's day began to think in ways that people in our day think when they use good energy and higher power. The philosopher Heraclitus, for example, used logos to refer to the rational principle of the universe. The logos was the source of life. The logos is that which gives life its rationality, its reasonableness. The Stoic philosophers used logos to refer to the integrating principle of the universe. The logos is that which makes for the laws of nature, that which maintains the created order, that gives it its unity and its dynamism. In the beginning was the rational principle, the integrating principle. And the rational integrating principle was with God. And the rational integrating principle was God. And the rational integrating principle became flesh and dwelt among us. Wow. For the Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, the Logos was the agent of creation. The medium for the government of the world. And although for Philo, the Logos was impersonal, he called the Logos the captain and pilot of the universe. In the beginning was the captain and pilot of the universe. I agree, Philo would say. And the captain and the pilot was with God. Again, I agree, Philo would say. And the captain and pilot was God. What? Philo would ask. The Logos was God. All things came into being through the captain and pilot of the universe. Of course, Philo would say. And the captain and pilot of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. And Philo would have been stunned into silence. For most of the Jews in John's day, the word, the Logos, is that by which the living God creates and communicates. For most, the word, the logos, is not, is not personal, yet it is the vehicle by which the personal God creates and communicates personally. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, and God said, and God said. God creates by speech, by the word. And then again and again, the prophets say, the word of the Lord came upon me. God communicates. By the word. The best way to put it from this Jewish perspective is to say that the Logos is God's self revelation, or the Logos is God's self expression. In the beginning was the self expression. Of course. Because the living God is the God who delights to make himself known, like light always radiating out, always shining forth. In the beginning was the self-expression, and the self-expression was with God, and the self-expression was God. But, of course, the word, the Logos, can be nothing other than God himself. For when God expresses God's self, that self-expression is God's self. When I express myself, that expression is myself. 
When you express yourself, that expression is yourself. When God expresses God's self, that expression is God's self. The Logos was with God and was God. Of course. In the beginning was the self-expression. And the self-expression was with God. And the self-expression was God. There was. There's that verb again. Was. Already. Always already. The word was God. As many of you know, there are those who argue that John's phrase should be translated, the word was a God. Not the word was God, but the word was a God. And they argue this because the word for God in the text, theos, does not have a definite article. The God. Just God. So they say that the Greek should be rendered as, and the word was a God. Or the word was divine. That is not possible for two reasons. First, the word theos, God, cannot be rendered divine for the simple reason that there's a perfectly good word John could have used had he wanted to make that point, the word theios, T-H-E-I-O-S. And secondly, The noun theos, or God, does not need the definite article because the word logos has the definite article. This verb was joins logos and God. If one of them is definite, the other is also definite. Now, more to say on this another time. In the beginning was the self-expression, and the self-expression was God, of course. Or to make all of this a little more culturally accessible, try this. Think of the Logos as the selfie. In the beginning was the selfie. The selfie was with God and the selfie was God. Of course. If the living God takes a selfie, that selfie can be nothing less than the living God. When I take a selfie of me, the the, the selfie is me. When you take a selfie of you, the, the selfie is you. All things came into being by the selfie. And the selfie became flesh and dwelt among us. That's why the Apostle Paul can later say things like, Jesus Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. It's why he can say things like, the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's why Jesus can go on to say, the one who beholds me, beholds the one who sent me. The one who sees me, sees the Father. And that's why John concludes his overture by saying he has explained him. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exegeted him. So who is the Jesus of Advent and Christmas? Who is this one sleeping in the manger? The one who, before Bethlehem, already was. Always, already was, God, was God, 
in the beginning, before the beginning. And then in the overture, John tells us what the Logos was doing before Bethlehem. And the word was with God. With. Boy, this preposition takes us into the mystery of the Godhead. The paradoxical mystery of God. That God's self is at once God and yet distinct from God and in fellowship with God. Before Bethlehem, Jesus the Logos enjoys intimate relationship with God as God in the bosom of the Father, says John. Which tells us that Bethlehem was not Jesus' first home. His first home was God. His first home was the Father, in the Father. And part of the mystery is that when he becomes human, when he takes up our flesh and blood and makes it his home, he does not leave his first home. He never leaves being in the Father. All he does and says in his days of his earthly life, he does and says while he is in the Father. Which further tells us that he does not come to meet any need in himself. That's why he can be totally selfless. He does not come to meet any need in himself. He was perfectly happy in his first home. He comes to us out of fullness. He comes not to use us to fulfill some need in himself. He comes to give himself. He comes to give what he has already enjoyed in his first home. So John sings in the overture of his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace, one grace upon another grace, upon another grace, upon another grace. He comes to our home out of the fullness of his first home so that in our home we might experience the fullness of his first home. And the word was with God. Actually, this preposition with should be translated toward. In the beginning was the word and the word was toward God. Suggesting not only fellowship with the Father, but face-to-face towardness. In the beginning, face-to-face toward the Father. In the beginning, face-to-face toward God. Before the beginning. And when he became flesh and dwelt among us, he did not turn away from this face-to-faceness. He lives his whole earthly life face-to-face toward the Father. This is why Jesus is always saying, I only say what I hear the Father say. I only do what I see the Father do. In the beginning, toward God. In heaven, toward God. On earth, toward God. Before Bethlehem, toward God. In Bethlehem, toward God. Twelve years old, toward God. Did Did you not know I needed to be about my Father's business? On the cross, toward God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Toward God. Fixed toward God. Which means also God toward the Logos. Face to face. The Logos toward God and God toward the Logos. Which is why throughout the story we hear the Father saying the kinds of things he says about Jesus. At his baptism. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. 
at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was toward God. Are we surprised then when we hear Jesus pray later in the story in John 17? And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had with you before the world was. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Logos was, is, and always will be toward God. Which means... That the only logical way to live is toward God. Not only with God, but toward God. Only saying what we hear the Father say. Only do what we see the Father doing. The Logos becomes flesh so that we too might live logically toward God in every event in every encounter with God and toward God. Before Bethlehem, the Logos was with and toward God. And not just hanging out, all things came into being by Him. Before Bethlehem, Jesus the Logos was at work creating all things. To make the point stronger, John adds, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. An astonishing claim. Not only is there a creator, astonishing enough to say in our time, I would be happy if our culture just believed there was a creator. But to think that the creator is the one who became flesh. You see, this overture then is singing a powerfully life-transforming truth. It tells us that the universe is not an accident. It tells us that you and I are not accidents. When the philosopher asks, why is there not nothing? John answers, because of a word. Because of Jesus the Logos. He spoke and it all came into being. Oh, how fortunate the angels were to be first created. For they were there before Bethlehem when the Logos was creating. And Job tells us they sang for joy. Let there be light, says the Logos. And there was, and the angels sang for joy. Let there be lights, and there were sun and moon and stars, and the angels sang for joy. Let there be earth, and poof, there was, and the angels sang for joy. Let there be horses and cows and lions and bears and rabbits and hamsters, and let there be elephants, and they emerged prancing like kings, and the angels sang for joy. Let there be humans, says the Logos, and there were, and the angels could hardly contain the joy that was so intense. And then one night a baby was born in Bethlehem and the sky is filled with angels singing with joy unspeakable full of glory. All things came into being by Him. By Him who became flesh. By Jesus of Nazareth. It means that all of existence owes its life to Him. Everything that has life and breath owes that life and breath to Him. 
Even those who do not yet know him. And even those who do not want his name named in the civic realm during this season. Everyone owes their being to him. Which is why no one who meets Jesus ever speaks of meeting a stranger. And which is why the only logical way to live is in sync with the Logos who gives us life. All things came into being by him. Is it any wonder then that his whole time on earth he was recreating? Turning water into wine, multiplying loaves and fishes, healing lepers, giving sight, chasing evil spirits away, raising the dead. When you know that Jesus is the one by whom all things came into being, miracles are not a problem. The wonder is not the miracles. The wonder is that he dies. And that is the mystery of mysteries in the rest of the story. The Creator comes to earth, sets his face toward Jerusalem, makes his way to the cross. The one who always was, dies. The mystery is even deeper. In that death, a separation takes place. The eternal, intimate, face-to-face fellowship is broken for three hours. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not mere emotionalism wrung from excruciating pain. The relationship at the center of all things in the beginning is being rent apart. That's why the darkness falls That's why the rocks near the cross are splitting. Creation knows that something profound is taking place. He who was always with God, he was always toward God, was on Good Friday alone. He who has always lived in the bosom of the Father was in that moment in the bosom of sin and death, taking into himself the forsakenness the world deserves in its sin so that we never experience the forsakenness we deserve. That's the wonder for which the overture is preparing us. He who always was chooses to die that we might live. My favorite poet is Lucy Shaw. She imagines Mary holding Jesus on Christmas Eve and she says, Older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free. Blind in my womb to know my darkness ended. Brought to this birth for me to be newborn. And for me to see, and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. The Logos, the maker of all things, enters the world which has sinned itself full of violence and pain. Taking the pain and violence into himself and through that suffering, drawing us into the life he has lived since there was no time. May we this Advent Christmas season be so caught up in the music of the overture that we can stave off 
the despair that says, look what the world is coming to. And instead, with John and with the angels, enter into the delight that says, but look at what has come and is coming to the world. 